I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. This is Tom Blair, Assistant Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine at UCLA and Clinical Faculty at VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. This chapter is Musculoskeletal and Rheumatology from Crush Step 1, Second Edition. Anatomy and Physiology Bone formation begins with osteoblasts producing osteoid, which is composed primarily of type 1 collagen. The osteoid matrix acts as a scaffold onto which minerals from the blood deposit to form hydroxyapatite crystals, and eventually rigid bone. Osteoclasts migrate from the bone marrow and are responsible for bone remodeling. Remodeling functions to repair bony microdamage and maintain calcium homeostasis. Remodeling is under hormonal control, so when calcium is high, calcitonin is released to inhibit osteoclast function directly. When calcium is low, parathyroid hormone is released, which induces osteoblasts to activate osteoclasts. Osteoclasts then resorb bone and release calcium into the circulation. Osteoblasts will eventually produce more osteoid to replace the resorbed bone. The mnemonic is osteoblast build bone, whereas osteoclasts consume bone, and calcitonin tones down calcium. Long bones. Long bones are weight-bearing bones such as the tibia and femur. They are important for skeletal mobility. These bones grow via endochondral ossification, which is cartilage-dependent growth at the epiphyseal plate, which is the growth plate. Long bones are divided into the epiphysis, which is the end of the bone, the diaphysis, which is the shaft of the bone, the metaphysis, which lies between the two, and the epiphyseal plate, which is the growth plate. Flat bone. Flat bones provide broad, flat surfaces for muscle attachment or protection. Examples include the pelvis and skull. Growth is through intramembranous ossification, which is cartilage-independent growth. Cartilage. Cartilage is produced by chondrocytes and composed primarily of type 2 collagen, ground substance, and elastin. Highline cartilage provides a compressible, low-friction, high-strength material ideal for cushioning joints. Elastic cartilage contains relatively more elastin and forms structures such as the pinna of the ear and epiglottis. Because cartilage is avascular, chondrocytes must rely on diffusion to obtain nutrients. Cartilage has only a minimal capacity for regeneration because of the low number of highly specialized chondrocytes. Ligaments are fibrous connective tissue composed of collagen that connect bone to bone. Fascia is fibrous connective tissue composed of collagen that connects muscle to muscle. Tendons are fibrous connective tissue composed of collagen that connect muscle to bone. The points at which tendons insert into bone are called entheses. Skeletal muscle is voluntarily controlled muscle tissue innervated by the somatic nervous system. Individual muscles are composed of bundles of fascicles, which are composed of bundles of muscle fibers. The muscle fibers are the muscle cells, referred to as myocytes. At the subcellular level, Muscle fibers contain bundles of myofibrils. Each myofibril consists of proteins, for example actin and myosin, that form thick and thin filaments that repeat along the myofibril. These repeating units are called sarcomeres. 
The sarcomere is the basic contractile unit of muscle and is composed of actin and myosin. The A-band contains thick myosin filaments. The M-line bisects the center of the A-band and contains proteins that link the myosin filaments together. The I-band falls on either side of the A-band and contains thin actin filaments. Contraction occurs when the actin and myosin fibers overlap in the presence of calcium and ATP, allowing cross-bridge cycling. Type 1 muscle fibers are slow-twitch muscle fibers. They are red because of their dense concentration of capillaries, mitochondria, and myoglobin. These fibers specialize in the aerobic metabolism needed for sustained muscle contractions. Type 2 muscle fibers, on the other hand, are fast-twitch muscle. They are white because of relatively sparse mitochondria and myoglobin. These fibers specialize in anaerobic burst of activity for fast, forceful muscle contractions. The following is the step-by-step -step process of skeletal muscle contraction. Step 1. Action potentials release acetylcholine from the presynaptic neuron into the neuromuscular junction. Step 2. Nicotinic acetylcholine receptors open ligand-gated ion channels allowing sodium to rush into the cell, generating a depolarizing in-plate potential. 3. Transverse tubules, that is T-tubules, which form invaginations in the sarcolingual muscle cell, carry the depolarizations deep into the myofibers to cause a conformational change of the voltage-sensitive dihydropyridine receptors. Dihydropyridine receptors are in the sarcolingual membrane, but thanks to the T-tubules, their position next to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. 4. The dihydropyridine receptor's conformational change opens the reonidine receptor on the sarcoplasmic reticulum and allows the large calcium stores of the sarcoplasmic reticulum to diffuse into the cytoplasm. 5. Calcium binds troponin C, causing a conformational change of tropomyosin and exposing the myosin-binding site of actin. 6. Myosin heads can now form cross-bridges with actin to allow cross-bridge cycling. 7. As long as calcium is bound to troponin and ATP is present, cross-bridge cycling will continue. Once the calcium ATPase sequesters calcium back in the sarcoplasmic reticulum, there's no longer sufficient calcium to bind troponin C. Tropomyosin then returns to its resting position, blocking the formation of actin-myosin cross-bridges and resulting in muscle relaxation. If, on the other hand, calcium remains present and ATP is absent, the muscle cell will enter a state of rigor, which is prolonged contraction. Okay, moving on to smooth muscle. Smooth muscle is non-striated muscle under involuntary control of the autonomic nervous system. Smooth muscle provides vascular tone within blood vessels and is the contractile force for the involuntary movements throughout the body, including the gastrointestinal, genitourinary, and respiratory tracts. The following is the step-by-step -step process for smooth muscle contraction. Step 1. Action potentials depolarize smooth muscles, which open voltage-sensitive calcium channels in the sarcolemma. Step 2. Calcium flows into the cell down its concentration gradient and binds calmodulin. Three. The calcium-calmodulin complex activates myosin light chain kinase. Step 4. Activated myosin light chain kinase phosphorylates myosin light chains and increases their ATPase activity. Increased ATPase activity promotes cross-bridge cycling. Next, myosin light chain phosphatase eventually inhibits contraction by dephosphorylating myosin light chains. Lastly, individual smooth muscle cells are connected via gap junctions, 
This means one neuron can stimulate one smooth muscle, but an entire group of cells will depolarize and contract together. The last type of muscle cell we'll discuss is cardiac muscle. Cardiac muscle provides the contractile force of the myocardium and is composed of cardiac myocytes. Cardiac muscle has some properties of striated muscle and some of smooth muscle. Like skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle is striated with sarcomeres of actin and myosin. Contraction is very similar to skeletal muscle contraction. Sodium influx induces depolarizations which spread down the T-tubules. Unlike skeletal muscle, however, depolarization of cardiac myocyte triggers extracellular calcium to flow inward through L-type calcium channels, which triggers rionidine receptors to release calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So that is calcium-induced calcium release rather than dihydropyridine receptor-induced calcium release. Cardiac muscle is like smooth muscle and then it is under involuntary control, and cells are linked together via gap junctions, which allow coordinated contraction. Of note, cardiac muscle contains a unique type of troponin that functions in a similar manner to skeletal muscle troponin. This protein is leaked during cardiac myocyte damage, and laboratory measurement of troponin is very sensitive for detecting myocardial infarction. Okay, next up we're going to talk about the anatomy of the upper extremity. For starters, the brachial plexus. This is a bundle of nerve fibers responsible for sensory and motor innervation to the upper extremity. For the purpose of step one, it's valuable to know all the roots, trunks, divisions, cords, branches, and their associated lesions. The muscular and sensory innervation of nerves should also be memorized. We'll talk now about the nerves that come off the brachial plexus. First off, the axillary nerve. This is composed of nerve roots C5 and C6. The axillary nerve provides sensory innervation from the shoulder over the deltoid muscle. It innervates the deltoids and teres minor, which controls shoulder abduction. Injury is usually from a proximal arm injury, for example, a proximal humeral fracture or an anterior shoulder dislocation. The next nerve we'll discuss is a long thoracic nerve. This is composed of nerve roots C5 through C7. The long thoracic nerve innervates the serratus anterior muscle, which pulls the scapula forward with relation to the thorax. Damage of the long thoracic nerve causes a winged scapula. Injury to the nerve may occur from a stab wound or from surgical procedures. The musculocutaneous nerve is composed of nerve roots C5 through C7 also. The musculocutaneous nerve innervates the biceps brachii and brachialis muscle, which are responsible for elbow flexion and supination. Injury may occur because of forced stretching between the shoulder and the head, damaging the upper trunk. The median nerve is composed of nerve roots C8 through T1. The median nerve provides sensory innervation from the palmar surface of the hand and the first three and a half digits. The median nerve innervates all of the forearm flexors except the flexor carpi ulnaris, which is innervated by the ulnar nerve. It's also responsible for flexion of the lateral digits via the lateral lumbricals and opposition of the thumb through the opponent's pollicis. Proximal injury of the median nerve causes inability to oppose the thumb, which is the so-called ape hand. Distal injury causes the bottle sign, which is inability to flex the second and third digits, resulting in an inability to hold a bottle. Damage may be caused by fracture of the distal humerus proximally or compression from carpal tunnel syndrome more distally. The ulnar nerve is composed of nerve roots C8 through T1. The ulnar nerve provides sensory information from the fifth digit and lateral fourth digit. 
It innervates some of the wrist and finger flexors and the intrinsic muscles of the hand. Injury to the ulnar nerve may be caused by fracture of the distal humerus, fracture of the hamate bone of the wrist, or compression of the cubital tunnel. The radial nerve is composed of nerve roots C5 through T1. The radial nerve provides sensory innervation from the dorsum of the hand, except the fifth and lateral fourth digits. It is responsible for extension of the elbow, triceps brachii, extension of the wrist, extensor carpi radialis, and extension of the fingers. For this reason, it is called the great extensor of the arm. Damage to the radial nerve causes wrist drop. Injury may occur because of a mid-shaft humeral fracture or axillary compression. Axillary compression commonly happens because of poorly fitted crutches or classically in the so-called Saturday night palsy where there's compression of the radial nerve in the axilla because somebody falls asleep with their arm draped over the edge of a bar. Okay, next up we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about brachial plexus syndromes. First up is the winged scapula. Damage to the long thoracic nerve, made up of C5 through C7, causes paralysis of the serratus anterior muscles and a winged scapula because of inability to hold the scapula against the rib cage. This injury is more pronounced when the patient faces a wall and presses their hand against the wall. Next syndrome we'll discuss is herb palsy, also called waiter's tip. Damage to the upper brachial plexus roots cause weakness of the abduction from deltoid paralysis, that is C5. Weakness of external rotation from infraspinatus paralysis, C5, and loss of flexion from biceps paralysis, C6. The internal muscles of the hand are unaffected. Think of it as damage to the roots supplying the axillary and musculocutaneous nerves. The result is an arm that hangs limply by the side in extension and internal rotation. Injury is usually caused by shoulder dystocia, in which the infant's shoulder cannot pass the maternal pubic symphysis during birth. The result is traction on the shoulder, which damages the upper brachial plexus roots. Next up, we'll discuss Klumpka palsy. Injury to the lower roots of the brachial plexus C8 through T1 causes total clawing of the hand because of paralysis of the lumbricals and finger extensors. Injury occurs when the raised arm is forcibly pulled upward, as may occur during birth, or for example, if a patient catches himself or herself by a branch while falling from a tree. Thoracic Outlet Syndrome Compression of the brachial plexus above the first rib causing numbness and weakness of the affected arm, especially after protracted usage or reaching overhead, which is common in weightlifters. On physical examination, the patient's radial pulse may disappear on tilting the head towards the unaffected side, called the Adson sign, because of compression of the subclavian artery at the thoracic outlet. Next up, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about some peripheral nerve lesions of the upper extremity. First up is the ulnar claw, also called the Pope's blessing. Damage to the ulnar nerve at the median epicondyle, or wrist, causes lumbrical weakness and flexion, that is, clawing, of the fourth and fifth digits. Wrist drop, which we already talked a little bit about earlier, is caused by compression of the radial nerve. It results in unilateral wrist drop because the radial nerve innervates the fingers and wrist extensors. Compression may be in the axilla because of the use of crutches, or at the midshaft of the humerus because of a fracture. Lead poisoning can lead to wrist drop also through its effect on the radial nerve. Classically, wrist drop occurs when a patient becomes drunk and falls asleep with his or her arm draped over a bar. This compresses the radial nerve in the axilla and is called Saturday night palsy. 
Ape hand, also called non-opposable thumb, is caused by median nerve injury, which causes weakness of the opponent's pollicis muscle and inability to abduct or oppose the thumb. Bottle sign is caused by distal median nerve injury, and this causes weakness of the lateral lumbricals and inability to flex the second and third digits. Patients are therefore unable to hold a bottle. Carpal tunnel syndrome. The carpal tunnel is a narrow tunnel of the anterior wrist. The carpal bones form the floor, and the flexor retinaculum, also called the transverse carpal ligament, forms the roof. The tunnel contains nine flexor tendons and the median nerve. Compression of the median nerve causes pain and numbness in the lateral palmar surface of the hand. Chronic compression may also cause weakness of palmar abduction and thenar atrophy. Patients may have a positive Tunnel sign, which is paresthesia with percussion of the carpal tunnel, or a positive Phelan maneuver, which is paresthesias with forced wrist flexion. Conservative treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome involves use of a night splint, which keeps the wrist in a neutral position. Medical treatment involves steroid injections, and surgical treatment, which is definitive, occurs when the flexor retinaculum is released. Anything that compresses the median nerve may cause this syndrome, including myxedema from hypothyroidism, fluid compression within the carpal tunnel syndrome during pregnancy, or compression from synovitis secondary to constant wrist flexion, for example, during typing. Rheumatoid arthritis and its associated inflammation can also cause carpal tunnel syndrome. Last up is ulnar tunnel syndrome. Compression of the radial nerve at the wrist causes paresthesias of the medial surface of the hand, specifically the ring and little finger. This classically occurs in cyclists due to compression of the ulnar tunnel against the bicycle handlebars. Okay, let's move along to anatomy of the lower extremity. So the lumbosacral plexus, unlike the brachial plexus, is probably not high yield to memorize in any detail. The muscular and sensory innervation of major nerves should be known, however. Let's start with the femoral nerve. The femoral nerve is composed of nerve roots L2 through L4. The femoral nerve provides sensory innervation to the anterior thigh and medial leg. It innervates the iliacus and all muscles of the anterior compartment of the thigh, that is the quadriceps and sartorius muscle. It is therefore responsible for thigh flexion and leg extension. That's the motion of a high kick. Injury may occur because of fracture of the pelvis. Obturator nerve. Obturator comes from the Latin word to close. It's composed of nerve roots L2 through L4. The obturator nerve provides sensory innervation from the medial thigh. It also innervates the muscle of the medial compartment of the thigh, the gracilis, adductors, and obturator externus. It allows for hip adduction, that is, closing, of the thigh. The sciatic nerve is broken down into, first up, the fibular or peroneal branch. The fibular branch is composed of nerve roots L4 through S2. The fibular nerve provides sensory innervation to the anterior shin and dorsum of the foot. It innervates the anterior compartment of the leg and is responsible for foot and toe dorsiflexion. Injury causes foot drop. The tibial branch. The tibial branch of the sciatic nerve is composed of nerve roots L4 through S3. The tibial nerve provides sensory innervation to the sole of the foot. It innervates the hamstrings, soleus, and gastrocnemius muscles and allows for knee, foot, and toe flexion. The superior gluteal branch of the sciatic nerve is composed of nerve roots L4 through S1. 
The superior gluteal nerve innervates the gluteus medius, gluteus minimus, and tensor fasciolata muscles, which are involved in thigh abduction. Injury causes inability to abduct the thigh while walking, which can cause the Trendelenburg gait. The inferior gluteal branch of the sciatic nerve is composed of nerve roots L5 through S2. The inferior gluteal nerve innervates the gluteus maximus muscle and is involved in hip extension. Okay, let's talk about peripheral nerve lesions of the lower extremity. Foot drop. So compression of the common fibular, also known as peroneal nerve, at the head of the fibula causes weakness of the anterior tibialis muscle and inability to dorsiflex the foot. Patients may present with a steppage gait, where they lift the affected thigh high enough to prevent their toes from dragging on the ground. Nerve compression is most frequently caused by simply crossing one's legs in a way that causes pressure on the fibular head. Fibular head and neck fractures are also occasionally implicated. Sensory loss may be concurrent and occurs in the anterolateral shin and dorsum of the foot and the superficial peroneal nerve distribution. Trendelenburg gait. Injury to the superior gluteal nerve causes weakness of the gluteal muscles and inability to abduct the hip. On examination, positive Trendelenburg sign is hip dropping on the contralateral side to the affected lesion when standing on the ipsilateral leg. That is, if the right superior gluteal nerve is damaged, then standing on the right leg will result in left hip drop. When walking, they will compensate by leaning their trunk over the affected side. That is, if the right superior gluteal nerve is damaged, the patient will lean their trunk to the right when walking. This is called the Trendelenburg gait. In this section, we're going to talk a little bit about joints in detail. So the shoulder is formed mostly by the humeral head as it sits in the glenoid fossa. The rotator cup is a group of four tendons that support the glenohumeral joint. The muscles involved can be remembered by the mnemonic SITS. S for supraspinatus, involved in abduction, infraspinatus, external rotation, teres minor, abduction, and subscapularis, internal rotation. A rotator cuff tear most frequently affects the supraspinatus muscle and may be detected by a positive drop arm test, which is the inability to keep the arm abducted below 90 degrees. Impingement syndrome of the rotator cuff occurs when the supraspinatus tendon becomes inflamed as it passes between the acromion process and the head of the humerus. Symptoms include shoulder pain and weakness, especially with overhead movements. Physical examination may reveal a positive Nears or Hawkins test. The knee. The ligamentous structures of the knee add stability to the joint. Extracapsular ligaments include the lateral and medial collateral ligaments, which resist valgus and varus forces, respectively. The patellar ligament connects the patella to the tibial tuberosity. The anterior cruciate ligament and ACL tears. The ACL originates on the posterior surface of the femur and travels to the anterior surface of the tibia. It functions to prevent anterior translation of the tibia in relation to the femur. Injury often occurs secondary to forced hyperextension or non-contact injury during pivoting, for example, while skiing. Patients will report an immediate pop sensation and inability to bear weight, followed by swelling of the affected knee. This is because of hemarthrosis. Physical examination will reveal joint instability with a positive anterior drawer and Lachman test, that is forced anterior translation of the tibia on the femur. X-rays are non-diagnostic, 
but MRI will reliably reveal a tear. Treatment may be conservative or surgical. Posterior cruciate ligament, PCL, tears. The PCL originates on the anterior surface of the femur and travels to the posterior surface of the tibia. It functions to prevent posterior translation of the tibia in relation to the femur. Physical examination will reveal a positive posterior drawer test, which is forced posterior translation of the tibia on the femur, and posterior sag test, that is posterior translation of the tibia on the femur due to gravity. Medial and lateral menisci tear. These C-shaped fibrocartilage rings provide structural support to the knee and reduce friction within the joint. Physical examination of a meniscal tear may reveal decreased range of motion and joint line tenderness. The unhappy triad. This reversed simultaneous injury of the ACL, medial collateral ligament, and either the medial or lateral meniscus, which may occur with lateral impact of the knee when the foot is planted on the ground. Ankle sprains. Ankle sprains are most common after rolling the ankle, that is, forced ankle inversion. The weakest ligament, the anterior talofibular ligament, is the most frequently involved. Medial ankle sprains are quite rare, that is, forced ankle eversion, because of the strength of the medial deltoid ligament. This is intuited by simply noting the ease of ankle inversion compared with the difficulty of ankle eversion. This brings us to the pathology section of the chapter. Neuromuscular junction disorders. Myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune condition in which antibodies attack postsynaptic nicotinic acetylcholine receptors at the neuromuscular junction. The result is muscle weakness and easy fatigability that worsens throughout the day and with repetitive movement. Muscles of the face are particularly affected, and patients often present with ptosis or difficulty keeping their eyes open by the end of the day. Myasthenic crisis occurs when weakness significantly affects the muscles of respiration. Diagnosis of myasthenia gravis can be suggested by the ice pack test. Because neuromuscular junction transmission is more efficient at lower temperatures, an ice pack applied to the eyes improves ptosis. Injection of edrophonium, a short-acting acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, also improves ptosis by increasing acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. This is rarely used as a diagnostic tool anymore, however, since the surge of acetylcholine can also cause bradycardia and bronchospasm. It is still tested on step one, though, because it addresses the underlying pathophysiology of myasthenia gravis. Diagnostic laboratory tests reveal the presence of anti-acetylcholine receptor antibodies. The thymus is often the culprit in production of these antibodies. CT or MRI of the chest should be performed to investigate for thymoma. A therapeutic thymectomy may halt progression of the disease. Additionally, acetylcholine esterase inhibitors such as baritostigmine provide symptomatic improvement by increasing the concentration of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. Finally, immunosuppressants may decrease the autoimmune response. Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome is an autoimmune condition in which antibodies attack presynaptic voltage-gated calcium channels at the neuromuscular junction thereby decreasing release of acetylcholine. Unlike myasthenia gravis, symptoms are less likely to involve facial muscles and are more likely to involve proximal muscles. Proximal muscle weakness presents as difficulty climbing stairs or rising from a chair. Unlike myasthenia gravis, symptoms will improve with repetitive movements, called Lambert sign. 
Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome is a perineoplastic syndrome highly associated with small cell lung carcinoma. Treatment with peridostigmine and immunosuppressants is similar to myasthenia gravis. Treatment should also be aimed at any underlying malignancy. Next up is muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is an X-linked recessive mutation of the dystrophin gene. Dystrophin connects the myocyte cytoskeleton to the surrounding extracellular matrix. Because dystrophin is the longest human gene, it is susceptible to spontaneous mutations. Without functional dystrophin, myocytes undergo damage and cell death. The result is progressive muscular weakness and atrophy, usually beginning before age of 5 years. Patients are usually wheelchair-bound by age 12. The hips, pelvis, and thighs are affected first. Patients may present with pseudohypertrophy of calf muscles, that is, calf enlargement caused by muscle tissue being replaced by fat and fibrous tissue, and Gower sign, where patients rise to stand upright by walking their hands up their legs. Patients usually die in their 20s because of cardiac and diaphragmatic involvement. Elevated serum creatine kinase CK levels and characteristic findings on muscle biopsy are diagnostic. Becker muscular dystrophy is a mild form of muscular dystrophy caused by dysfunctional but not absent dystrophin protein, also inherited in an X-linked recessive pattern. Onset is later and patients may survive to adulthood. Let's talk about some mechanical injuries. Sprains. Sprains are ligamentous injuries as a result of forceful stretching, especially of the ankle, knee, and wrist. In severe forms, Ligamentous rupture may occur, producing a popping sound. Physical examination may reveal joint instability, ecchymoses, or effusions. A strain. A strain is a muscle injury. It's a result of forceful stretching as well. Colloquially, it's known as a pulled muscle. Dislocations. Shoulder dislocations. In general, there is a trade-off between range of motion around a joint and stability of that joint. Therefore, it shouldn't be surprising that the shoulder is the most commonly dislocated joint because of the phenomenal range of motion and relative instability of the glenohumeral joint. Anterior dislocation accounts for about 95% of cases. It's caused by pressure to the abducted, externally rotated, extended arm, as may occur during a fall on an outstretched hand. Anterior shoulder dislocations can potentially damage the axillary nerve. Posterior dislocations only account for about 5% of shoulder dislocations and are caused by violent contractions, as in seizures or electrocutions. An incredibly rare cause of shoulder dislocations, but sometimes tested, is luxation erecta, which is an inferior shoulder dislocation. This results in the patient's arm being stuck in the raised position, as if their hands were being raised to ask a question. Hip dislocations these are rare because of the relative stability of the femoral head within the acetabulum. Posterior hip dislocations account for about 90% of all cases. They are often caused by car accidents in which the knee is forced against the dashboard, pushing the femoral head posteriorly against the acetabulum. Epicondylitis Epicondylitis is a repetitive use injury causing tendon damage and leading to pain and tenderness of the lateral epicondyle, tennis elbow, or median epicondyle, golfer's elbow. A fracture. A fracture is simply a break in the continuity of bone. There are a number of high-yield facts that can be memorized about fractures. As a general rule, in terms of treatment, fractures should be reduced to anatomic position and immobilized. Closed, simple fractures. 
These are uncomplicated fractures in which the bone does not pierce the overlying skin. Open or compound fractures. The bone is exposed to the environment through the wound, so it's at risk for infection. Treatment includes procedural washout and antibiotics. Displaced fractures. The bone is separated in a non-anatomic position. It must be reduced before healing properly. Pathologic fractures. This means that bones break after trivial trauma. Although osteoporosis often is the pathology underlying these fractures, malignancies or bone cysts should also be considered. Spiral fractures. When torque is applied as the bone fractures, it may break in a spiral pattern. These are significant because they may indicate child abuse in the appropriate clinical scenario, for example, fracture from twisting the child's arm or leg. The spiral fracture of the distal tibia, called the toddler's fracture, however, is less concerning for child abuse because it may occur with rotational force during normal activity. Stress or hairline fracture. A fracture caused by constant or repeated stress instead of acute severe stress. Often these occur in weight-bearing bones, including the tibia and metatarsals. X-ray may not immediately reveal the fracture, so other modalities such as a CAT scan may be necessary. Treatment or immobilization based on clinical suspicion is often also reasonable. Basilar skull fractures. Usually these are secondary to trauma and may present as periorbital ecchymoses, called raccoon eyes, mastoid ecchymoses, called battle sign, blood in the middle ear, called hemotympanum, or cerebrospinal fluid leakage through the ears, otorrhea, or nose, rhinorrhea, associated with a salty metallic taste. Scaphoid fracture. Scaphoid fractures often occur secondary to a fall on an outstretched hand. Patients will have pain at the anatomic snuff box, but x-ray is usually unremarkable during the first week. Even if the x-ray is negative, a patient with tenderness over the anatomic snuff box should still be splinted. Otherwise, the scaphoid may undergo avascular necrosis because blood flow to the scaphoid is retrograde, that is, distal to proximal. Hip fractures. Proximal femoral fractures are notable for the association with osteoporosis and high mortality in older adults. Non-accidental trauma. In children, a handful of fractures are highly suspicious for non-accidental trauma. These include rib fractures, spiral fractures other than the toddler's fracture, and multiple fractures of different ages. In shaken baby syndrome, subdural hematomas and retinal hemorrhage may also be found. Child services should always be notified. Complications of fractures. Fractures that cause reduced mobility may predispose patients to deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary emboli. Anticoagulation should be considered in at-risk patients. In long bone fractures, fat emboli can occur if bone marrow leaks into local venules and embolizes to the lung. Patients will present with hypoxia, altered mental status, and a petechial rash. Tissue swelling or bleeding after a fracture may also increase local pressure because the surrounding fascial compartments may not stretch. Compartment syndrome occurs when this increased pressure compromises the vascular supply to the extremity. The forearm and leg are the areas most commonly affected. Patients will experience severe pain, and examination will reveal a tense wood-like compartment. Diagnosis can be confirmed by measuring the intracompartmental pressure. Treatment is fasciotomy, that is, surgical incision of the fascia. A mnemonic for this is that the history and physical exam reveals the five P's, pain, pallor, paresthesia, 
pulselessness, and paralysis. Osteoarthritis. Degenerative joint disease caused by mechanical wear and tear. Damage manifests as breakdown of cartilage, injury of subchondral bone, and changes to all articular structures. It's the most common type of arthritis. It presents as pain in weight-bearing joints that worsens with use. It may also be associated with decreased range of motion, a cool, non-inflammatory effusion, crepitus, and bony deformities, for example, Hebridean or Bouchard nodes. The joints most commonly affected are the distal interphalangeal, proximal interphalangeal, knees, hips, toes, and spine. Radiography reveals osteophytes, joint space narrowing, subchondral cyst, and subchondral sclerosis. Treatment involves weight loss to decrease stress on all joints, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, physical therapy, and or intraarticular injections of steroids or hyaluronic acid. Surgery and joint replacement may also be indicated. A shark co-joint. Neuropathy, usually secondary diabetes, reduces pain sensation and proprioception in the affected joint. Without these protective senses, joint destruction can be rapid and profound. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.